Well, the writers of Scripture call it exactly what it is, a sin. And the sin is so evil, it should exclude every person from God's kingdom. The sin is, is so bad that Jesus said those who practice it are liable to face judgment rather than salvation. And those who think they can continue to practice it and still call themselves followers of Christ are probably deceiving themselves and other people. Our, our culture has accepted this sin as a virtue instead of a vice. This sin has even found its way into churches and actually sometimes we applaud it and even have pastors who are too weak to preach against it. Most, most churches don't actively endorse it but still try to remain neutral. But neutrality is nothing more than endorsement covered in sheep's clothing. The sin I'm talking about is greed. Wait, do you think, what did you think I was talking about? Oh, you, you probably thought I was talking about the sin the writers of Scripture call sexual immorality. Not only because that this, you know, the series is about sex, but because we treat this sin like it's worse than all the others. However, sexual immorality is never mentioned in isolation by the writers of Scripture. It's always brought up in context where other sins are mentioned. Greed, slander, gossip, and others. So as we move forward in our discussion today, let's make sure we're on a hunt to slaughter all sin. In our lives. This is week three of, of this series, and if you missed any week, I would just encourage you to go back and watch. Uh, I, I think it would be impactful for you, but also because I don't have time to recap everything, and, and every, every week kind of builds on the previous week, previous weeks. But we discovered over the last few weeks of, of you know, some truths of God, I believe to be truths of God, communicated through the writers of Scripture. One of those is that Creator God created sex. And he created nothing like it. Like, he created it to be wonderful and powerful and awesome. And, and it is within in, in his created intent for it. Another truth we discovered that according to the writers of Scripture, according to Jesus, is that God created marriage to be between one man and one woman. And God's created intent for sex is to be within the context of marriage. And another truth we discovered, according to the writers of Scripture and according to Jesus, is that sexual immorality is any act of sex outside of, of God's created design for marriage. So any act of sex before, outside of, in addition to, after marriage of one man and one woman. And we've seen God saying over the last few weeks, there's nothing like sex because I created sex. And I created it to be so good. So enjoy it within my created intent for it. I mean, let this fire burn hot within my created intent for it. But you got to keep it there. Because taking this fire outside of my design will create a forest fire of destruction in you. Over the last few weeks we discovered that sexual immorality is like no other sin. Not because it's worse than any other sin. It's not worse. I mean, sin is sin. Sexual immorality is like no other sin. Not because God hates it more. Not because God will judge you more harsh, harshly. Not because he won't forgive you for it. Sexual immorality is like no other sin because it negatively impacts our souls. Who we are like no other sin. And that's why God says to the writers of Scripture, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it not because I'm against sex. I'm not against sex. I created it. Flee from it because I love you and I am for you. Flee from it because it's destructive to your soul in a way that no other sin is. See, there's no other category like sexual sin because it hurts you in a way that no other, sexual, in a way that no other sin can and no other sin does. So God says, come on, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, if you've asked Jesus to be the forgiver of your sins and leader of your life, flee, run, get his way as far as possible from sexual immorality. And if you've fallen into it as a follower of Christ, then you need to, and this is what we're going to talk about today, this word uh, today, repent. Now, this word repentance, it's a word that many of us have heard, but 
many of us have also misunderstood. And the, the most basic definition of repentance is to turn from something towards someone or some, something else. Like you're following a certain way, you're going in a certain direction. What repentance means in the most basic definition is to turn from who or what you're following towards something else. Towards someone else. So listen, when we, put, when we initially put our faith in Jesus... When we ask Jesus to be the forgiver of our sins and leader of our life, in essence, what we're doing is repenting. We're saying, hey, I was following my own path. I was, you know, you know, you know I was living in God, you know, my violation of sin against you. I wasn't following Jesus, and I've recognized that, and I realize I need a Savior, and I am turning toward you, Jesus. I'm going to follow you. I'm asking you to be the forgiver of my sin and the leader of my life. This, what I call initial repentance, it's how we're saved. It's how we're forgiven for our violation of sin against Holy Creator God. It's how we're reconciled in our broken, with our broken relationship with our Heavenly Father. It's how we receive the eternal life that Jesus came for, Jesus died for, and Jesus rose from the grave to offer us. And God invites every single person to initially repent, to turn from, from following Jesus, to turn toward following Jesus. And so if you've never done that, if you've never accepted God's forgiveness for you, his reconciling love for you, what Jesus did for you through his death and resurrection, man, today is the day to accept it. He is, he is offering it to you today, and all you have to do is to, to accept is put your faith in Jesus. And if you've never done that, and to, for whatever reason you want to do that today, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that a little bit later. But what you have to know is putting our faith in Jesus, putting our faith in Jesus, asking Jesus to be the forgiver of our sins and leader of our life, it does not make us perfect people. As followers of Christ, we still sin. So putting our faith in Jesus doesn't make us perfect people. It just makes us forgiven people. Which means after we put our faith in Jesus, when we sin, sin doesn't affect our salvation it, 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 what it does is it hurts. It hurts our relationship with God. It hurts others. It hurts our relationship with others. And it hurts ourselves. It doesn't affect our salvation. We're forgiven for our past, present, and future sins. But as followers of Christ, as those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, asking Jesus to be the forgiver of our sins and leader of our life, one of the ways that we follow Jesus is through what I call ongoing repentance. Which means when we become aware of sin in our life, we're saying, Jesus, I'm following you, I'm following you. But then we turn from him by sinning. And we become aware of that sin in our lives, we repent. Ah, Jesus, I'm going to take a step back toward following you. And we don't do this for salvation. We're already saved. We're already forgiven. We do it for our transformation. This, you know, when we become aware of sin in our life after followers of Christ, and we, okay, I'm turning back toward Jesus, this is one of the ways that God transforms us more into who he created us to be because transformation happens one next step at a time. And the more we're transformed, the more we experience God's presence in our lives. The hope and joy and peace and fulfillment that only can come from him, from him. So for every single person who would say that you're a follower of Christ, that you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus is calling us to repent of every sin in our life. Every sin we fall into, like, ah, need to turn back toward Jesus in that area of my life. He's calling us to repent, but especially with the sin, if we fall into the sin of sexual immorality. Once again, not because it's worse than any other sin, but because it hurts us in a way that no, in a way that no other sin does. Now, here's another truth that should create a lot of tension in those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ. 
It is that how we as followers of Christ, as people who put our faith in Jesus, relate to other people who have never put their faith in Jesus, how we relate to them greatly affects if they ever initially repent and put their faith in Jesus. The other thing that goes along with this is how we as followers of Christ relate to other people who are followers of Christ, relate to other people who have put their faith in Jesus, but who have fallen into a sin, particularly the sin of sexual immorality, it greatly affects if they ever repent of that. See, as a follower of Christ, Jesus, as the church, Jesus has called us to call sin, sin. He's called us to pick each other up when we fall down. He's called us to spur one another on toward him. He's called us to confess our sins to one another, to help lead each other toward loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength by taking next steps to follow Jesus. And we know this. Like, as followers of Christ, we know this, and we go, of course. Like, of course God wants, you know, the people who proclaim to be followers of Christ to repent of sexual immorality if they fall in it, into it. And of course, of course he wants me to help them. But what's the best approach in doing that? What's the most effective approach in doing that? What's your approach in doing that? Well, I know a common approach. The most common approach is to take a stand by our right positions. And here's how it sounds. Hey, you over there, you're living in sin. You're on the wrong side, and I'm over here on the true side, and I'm, and I'm going and, and to show you how wrong you are until I convince you of God's truth and you repent. Now, you may not say that out loud, but our actions prove that's many of our approach. I have a good friend of mine. He's a pastor. He's a much older pastor than I am. He has a granddaughter who recently, her, his granddaughter and her boyfriend moved in with one another. And he told her, you will not be coming with him to any of the family functions. You will not be bringing him to our house uh, until you guys move out and stop having sex with one another. Now the reason that my friend and the reason many of us take this approach is because they need to know the truth. And they need to repent. And the only way that's ever going to happen is if I stand over here away from them by this position of truth until they do. They need to know I don't condone their behavior. I don't condone their belief. I don't condone their position. And neither does God. Well, how's that approach working for you? I mean, have you ever once helped someone else who says they're a follower of Christ but who have fallen into sexual immorality repent of their sexual immorality through that approach? Have you ever helped them? When you sin as a follower of Christ, has that approach by someone else ever helped you repent? And the answer is no, never. I mean, this approach, it ain't working. It isn't helping lead each other to follow Jesus by, you know, turning from our sin. The only thing it's doing is creating a relational divide between one another and making each other feel like we're against one another. My friend's granddaughter will not even talk to him anymore. The relationship is broken. So once again, as followers of Christ, Jesus calls every single one of us, all of us who have put our faith in Jesus, he calls us to repent of every sin that we fall into. Calls us to do it, but especially sexual immorality. Not because it's worse than any other sin, but because it hurts us in a way that no other sin does. And how we as followers of Christ, we relate to other people who have put their faith in Jesus, who fall into sexual immorality, greatly affects if they ever repent. But the most common approach that many people take, it isn't working. 
That means we need a new approach. So what's the best approach? What's the most effective approach? Well, if, if our Heavenly Father, if God has an approach, I would assume that his approach is probably the best. So does God have an approach? And the answer is, yes, he does. He absolutely does. And the Apostle Paul tells us what his approach is in Romans 2. And here's, Paul, here's, here's God's approach. God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. For those of us who put our faith in Jesus, because God loves us, he wants every single one of us who have fallen into sin, who have chosen to sin, to repent, to turn. Back to Jesus and follow Jesus in that area of our life. But just like with every other sin, God's approach with us is kindness. Now real quick, you do realize that God doesn't have to choose this approach with us, right? I mean, we're people that have gone, I realized that I needed a Savior, and I realized what Jesus did on the cross for me, and he died for me, and I've accepted his love, and I've accepted his forgiveness, and I said, Jesus, thank you for all of that, and then we choose to go on and sin after that, and, you, and our sin is such a huge violation against him, against his created intent for us, against his created will for us. He doesn't have to, and he probably shouldn't choose to be kind to us from that point forward. He probably, he, you know, he, his approach could be shame his approach could be wrath his approach could be judgment and I'm going to tell you what he would choose that approach with you and me if he thought that that was going to be the most impactful but instead our all-knowing God our all-powerful God thinks his kindness is the best approach to lead us to repentance which leads me to ask you a question do you think you know better than God Do you think judgment and shame and guilt is a better approach to help lead people to repentance, particularly with sexual immorality? And I say that out loud, and that sounds idiotic to say out loud, but so often that's our approach. Which is the question, okay, what does God's kindness look like? Well, Jesus, he embodied it perfectly. And John, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, Jesus' best friend, explains how Jesus embodied it perfectly. Here, here's what John wrote. The word, referring to Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He was God in a bod. We have seen his glory, the glory of the, of the one and only Son who came from the Father. Here it is. Full of grace and truth. Jesus embodied the kindness of God that leads to repentance by being full of both grace and truth. Grace, unconditionally, excessively, giving people what they don't deserve. God's mercy, forgiveness, acceptance, truth, knowing, and unapologetically communicating God's holy, righteous, perfect truth. John did not say that Jesus was the balance of grace and truth, that Jesus sometimes did more truth than grace and sometimes he did more grace than truth. It says Jesus was the fullness of both at the same time, all the time. And that's what the kindness of God that leads to perfect, or that, that leads to repentance looks like because that's what perfect love is. Did you know that love is not love without grace? And did you know that love is also not love without truth? Because the opposite of truth are lies, and perfect love never lies. Perfect love never leads people intentionally or unintentionally away from God's truth. 
Now, Jesus fronted this love perfectly. He infronted this love fully, especially with people who were considered unacceptable sinners. Which leads to us in the big idea for today, which is, we embody God's kindness... That leads to people's repentance by walking in the fullness of grace and truth. Just like Jesus. Just like the one whom we say we followed. Jesus walked in the fullness of both because the fullness of God's grace is needed for God's truth to be heard. And the fullness of God's truth is needed for God's grace to be felt and and known and experienced. Not the balance of grace and truth but the fullness of grace and truth. And we don't do this real well. What we like to do is turn one up and turn one down and turn the other one up and go, man, here, more grace is needed here and so we need to water down truth or more truth is needed here so we need to turn down some grace. And that's not love. If you say you love people and you are doing this at all, you're lying to yourself. That is not perfect love. And that's not the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Walking in the fullness of grace and truth, it ain't easy. It ain't clean. It's messy and it's hard. And yet Jesus did it perfectly and thought we could embody it as well. And I want to take one example, one look at one example of how Jesus did it. And this example just so happens to be with someone who was caught living in sexual immorality and stories recorded in John 8. And in John 8, Leading up to John 8, Jesus is gaining popularity among the Jews because of who he claimed to be. The Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One, the Son of God, and because of the miracles he performs. Well, the legalistic Jewish religious leaders, they're fed up with Jesus. They hate Jesus because the things he did seem to contradict the 600 plus laws and commands that God gave the Jewish people in their Hebrew scriptures that we now call the Old Testament. Many of these religious leaders viewed Jesus as a lunatic, others as a liar. Most of them viewed him as a heretic. And they've been trying to discredit him without success and are getting really frustrated. But one day, they see Jesus in the Jewish temple, and so they try to set a trap for him. And here's how the story goes. At dawn, he, Jesus, appeared in the temple courts where all all the people gathered around him and sat down to teach them. So this crowd of Jewish people gather around Jesus, and he starts preaching. And all of a sudden, boom, chaos breaks out. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, the legalistic Jewish religious leaders, brought in a woman caught in adultery, which according to the writers of scripture, according to God, is sexual immorality because this act of sex is outside of creator God's created intent for it. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman who was caught in the act of adultery, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, and by the way, that's a phrase they use to refer to the 600 plus laws and commands in the Hebrew scriptures. In the law of Moses, Uh, uh, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. In the Hebrew scriptures, any Jew who committed the sin of adultery could be stoned. The Jewish religious leaders knew this. The Jewish crowd knew this. This Jewish woman knew this. And Jewish Jesus knew this. And these Jewish religious, religious leaders, they bust in, they interrupt Jesus, and then they ask Jesus what he thinks should happen to this woman. Not because they wanted to know what he thought, it's because they wanted to see if Jesus would say something that would contradict the Hebrew scriptures so that they could accuse him of heresy. Now, it goes without saying, this is probably not what the kindness of God looks like. And as they're pointing out her sin, The Jewish crowd that just a minute ago was listening to Jesus all happy. They start picking up rocks 
to stone her. Well, in typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't respond how anyone expects him to. As a matter of fact, he doesn't respond at all. Verse 6, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And Jesus takes a time out. Now, why? Well, I don't think it was for him to think about what to say. I mean, he's God in a bod. He's got it. Like, he knows what he's going to say, and he's going to say it perfectly. I don't know exactly why he took a time out, but maybe, just maybe, it was to let the tension rise in everyone who was there. I mean, put yourself in this woman's shoes. I mean, she knew the truth. I mean, she knew she was living in sexual immorality. She felt the guilt and the shame of it, you know, in that moment. And the longer she looked at everyone around her holding stones in their hands through her tear-filled eyes, I'm sure, the more guilt and shame and judgment she felt. And maybe you can relate to this woman. After the last couple weeks, you feel shame. You feel judgment from others or from God or from yourself for your sexual behavior. Now put yourself in the crowd's shoes. I mean, they knew the truth. They knew she was living in sexual immorality. And they did not believe the kindness of God leads to repentance. They thought the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the shame of God did. So they pick up the rocks to stone her, to condemn her, saying, hey, we're going to show you how wrong you are, and we're going to stone you until you repent. And the longer Jesus stayed quiet, the tighter they gripped their rocks, and the more rage and judgment and disgust they felt. Maybe you're like one of the people in the crowd holding a rock of condemning judgment. And you're ready to throw it over there to them until they repent. Well, the longer Jesus stayed quiet, the more tension everyone felt. So they pressed Jesus a little bit harder. When they kept on questioning him, verse 7, he straightened up and said to him, and then Jesus put the fullness of grace and truth on display for everyone there, starting with the crowd. Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote in the ground. In that moment, Jesus embodied the kindness of God with the crowd who were holding the rocks. He embodied the kindness of God. Basically, he says to him, is the truth, the truth is you aren't without sin either. You want to know the truth? The truth is you deserve God's judgment and wrath too, but instead... I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. Grace, mercy, patience. I'm going to offer you some forgiveness. Fullness. And then he bent down and took another time out. Verse 9, at this, those who began, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. After Jesus went quiet again, the Jewish crowd looked at the rocks they're holding on to. And in that moment, they knew they were just as guilty for the sin in their life. And in that moment, maybe for the first time ever, they knew that they were guilty of their sin of condemning judgment. So one by one, they dropped their rock and they turned and they went home. Is that you today? Now, the crowd was not alone in experiencing the kindness of God. Everyone had gone. 
And only Jesus and this woman were left standing there. Verse 10, and Jesus straightened up and said and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. As a Jewish woman, she knew God's truth. She knew she deserved to be condemned. And if Jesus was who he claimed to be, she knew that Jesus was the only one there that day who could actually condemn her. But instead, Jesus embodied the fullness of grace and said, I do not condemn you. Instead, I'm here to give you what you don't deserve. Unconditional acceptance, mercy, to offer you forgiveness. And you notice he said this not after she repented, but before she repented. Because the kindness of God is intended to lead to repentance. I mean, imagine how she must have felt in that moment. Imagine how much she must have felt to be offered so much undeserved grace. Who, because a moment ago she was surrounded with people who were ready to stone her. Imagine how much shame and guilt were lifted off her shoulders in that moment. Fullness of grace. But Jesus didn't stop there. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus also embodied the fullness of God's truth in that moment. He unapologetically communicated God's holy, righteous, perfect truth and said, make no mistake about it. You're sinning. So repent. Turn from. Because if you don't, this will destroy you like no other sin can and no other sin does. Is that you today? Now, the story abruptly ends right there. Just over. Story's over. And I believe John didn't record what this woman did next because he didn't need to record what this woman did next. He's assuming we all know she repented because if she hadn't of, it would be an anticlimactic story not worth telling. She didn't repent because Jesus took his stand on adultery over there. She did because she had a radical encounter with the kindness of God embodied in the person of Christ. Jesus embodied the kindness of God that leads to repentance by walking in the fullness of grace and truth. He did not balance them. He did not turn one up to turn one down. He did not do this juggling act, and they need a little bit more truth here, so i got to turn down some grace, or they need more some grace, so I've got to water down my truth. He was the fullness of both at the exact same time all the time. But you got to know, Jesus, he never changed. He never compromised. He never lowered. He never watered down his position on sin. He had a very high standard of sin. He had an extremely high standard of obedience so high that he got on a cross and died for the forgiveness of your and my sin because it was the only way that you and I can be forgiven for it so he had a real high standard and because of that he could have implemented the approach we so often do with this woman you need to know where I stand you're wrong you need to repent and until you do I'm going to have nothing to do with you but this is Jesus. And Jesus had a different approach. He took his stand with this woman in the fullness of grace and said, I do not condemn you. And at the same time, he took his stand with her in the fullness of God's truth and says, leave your life of sin. 
That's what the kindness of God that leads to repentance looks like because that's what perfect love is. And the perfect love of God displayed through Jesus is what transforms minds and hearts and lives and eternities and not just does behavior modification. Jesus embodied the kindness of God that leads to repentance by walking in the fullness of both grace and truth. And now he calls us to do the same with one another. Once again, for everyone who's a follower of Christ, for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, asking him to be the forgiver of our sins and leader of our life, Jesus wants to repent of every sin we fall into, but especially the sin of sexual immorality. Not because it's worse than any other sin, but because it hurts us in a way that no other sin does. Our approach with other followers of Christ, other people who have put their faith in Jesus who fall into sexual immorality, our approach with them greatly affects if they ever repent. So here's the best approach. Here's the most effective approach. Here's the Jesus approach. We embody God's kindness that leads to people's repentance by walking in the fullness of grace and truth. Listen, as a follower of Christ, it's not, up, it's not up to you to make anyone repent. You can't make them repent anyway. You can just do behavior modifications. That's not transforming. It's not up to you to try to change anyone because you can't. But it is your responsibility and it is my responsibility as Christ's followers to embody the kindness of God that leads to repentance by walking in the fullness of both grace and truth. The question is, how does that happen? How does that look? And the honest answer is, I don't have a person. Perfect answer. This is so hard. This is so messy. This is not clean and cut and dry and walk through these steps. That's impossible. So I don't have a perfect answer for this. But here's what I do know for a fact. I know for a fact that it can't and it won't happen outside of relationship. You can't and you won't help lead another follower of Christ who's fallen into a sin, especially sexual immorality, toward repentance outside of a relationship with them. You won't do it. Because the kindness of God is experienced within relationship. As soon as we lose relationship with one another, we lose the opportunity and the ability to lead one another toward Jesus. Never once have you helped someone take next steps to follow Jesus who you had a broken relationship with. And never once has someone helped you who you had a broken relationship helped you take next steps toward Jesus. It's never happened. And because of that, as followers of Christ, when another follower of Christ is living in sexual immorality, like Jesus, we must relationally stand with them. Instead of taking our stance over here, away from them, until they change, we must relationally stand with them in the fullness of grace. Extravagantly giving them what they don't deserve. Unconditional mercy and unconditional acceptance. And by the way, one of the best ways to do that is by listening to them instead of talking at them. Well, Ronnie, they need to know what's right so they can change. And how will that happen if I don't make it ultra clear right now? How's that working for you? It ain't working. No one's listening. It is hard to love someone while you're talking at them. Love is most, most authentically shown when we are listening. Powerful things happen when we care enough to hear people's stories. It shows we're interested in them and that we care about them. By listening, you know what you're communicating? You're communicating, come on, come as you are. 
Come as you are. You are welcome into my life. You are welcome at my table. And that is so powerful for them. But it's powerful for us too. Because it's how we learn where they're coming from. And why is that person who said that they put their faith in Jesus, why are they thinking the way they're thinking right now? Or feeling the way they're feeling right now? Or behaving the way that they're behaving right now? Well, I don't care about learning. I want them to know what's right. Do you care more about them knowing what's right or do you care more about helping lead them to repentance? Have them knowing how right you are ever helped lead someone toward repentance? No. It just creates a me against you gap. Listen, you can write a person right out of a relationship. You can be right, be right, be right, be right, be right about your position and write them right out of the relationship. And once again, as soon as we lose relationship with one another, we lose the opportunity ability to lead one another toward Jesus. By listening, you're not agreeing with them. It's helping you understand them. To relationally stand with people, we don't have to agree with them. But we need to do is understand. So we relationally stand with people by, walk, by walking in the fullness of grace. And at the same time, relationally stand with them in the fullness of truth. Both. Unapologetically communicating God's holy, righteous, perfect truth for them in order to lead them toward Jesus. But you've got to know, until God, God's truth will not be heard until God's grace is felt. I have a good friend of mine. His name's Emerus. Uh, Emerus is a part of Relevant. Emerus will tell you that he's put his faith in Jesus, asking him to be the forgiver of his sins and leader of his life. And Emerus desires to follow Jesus. But Emerus also has same-sex attractive and is actu- actively pursuing that. Now, I obviously believe him sexually pursuing that is not what God intends for him and his sexual immorality. And with Emerson, it breaks my heart because of ultimately what I believe it's doing to him. Now, over the years, I told you, Emerus is part of Relevant. Emerus is a, actually a really good friend of mine. And let me tell you the way that didn't happen. Over the years, me going, hey, sinner, there's no way you can be a follower of Jesus, sinner. You need to repent. Stay away. Stay away until you change. I could have done that. But over the years, I have chosen to relationally stand with Emrys. And I've listened and listened and listened and listened and listened and listened and listened. And unconditionally accepted. And welcomed into my life and said, come as you are, sit at my table. And over the years, I've also, as best I could, tried to communicate God's truth and what I believe God's intent for Emrys is. Emrys completely disagrees with me. Emerus knows what I believe to be God's truth, completely disagrees with me. Emerus would say, man, I'm a follower of Jesus. I put my faith in Jesus, but I just don't agree with you on this one. And he knows that I could not be any more on the different page than him. But he also knows I love him. And we maintain a great friendship. We could not disagree anymore if we tried on this subject. And he knows it, and I know it. But we love each other. We have a great friendship. You know, about six weeks ago, Emerson hit this a low point in his life. And I was one of the first people that he called just because he wanted to hear my voice. Because he wanted to hear someone's voice who loves 
him. This, and this week even, I was, I was asking Emerson, hey, can I tell your story on Sunday? Can I tell a story about our relationship? Emerson came to my house, and for an hour we just sat around and talked. And, you know, it was, it was just, we just have a great relationship. Now, Emerson, in this area of his life, Emerson may never repent and follow Jesus in this area of his life. You need to know, that's not up to me. That ain't up to me. All I can do is embody the kindness of God by walking in the fullness of grace and truth with Emrys. And I don't know how to do it perfectly, but I try hard. And I do because I love him. And what's most important is I want him to know God loves him. And I want him to take steps toward Jesus in this. But it'll never happen outside a relationship. Listen, if you're a follower of Christ, you've got to understand, we are the church. We are the body of Christ. People need to be able to come as they are and experience the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And that requires all of us. So are we going to be a church where people who are living in sexual immorality feel welcomed, feel loved, and where they can be honest and authentic? And the answer is, you're dang right we are. But it will not just take me and a few of us. It will take all of us. All of us walking in the fullness of grace and truth. And let me tell you what, you better do that with my friend Emrys. You better walk in the kindness of God and embody the kindness of God with my friend because that's my friend. You better not hurt my friend. By the way, the only people who won't do this the only people who won't walk in the fullness of grace and truth and try to do that are the people who either think they're perfect and they are without sin and don't need a savior or the people who think they know better than God. And I know that's none of you. As a church, we will, we will strive to walk in the fullness of grace and truth. We will never, ever turn down God's perfect grace. And we will never ever water down God's perfect truth. We will always try to lead people to take next steps to follow Jesus in the fullness of grace and truth. And let me tell you what, this sounds so weird what I'm about ready to say, but listen to the words I'm saying right now. If you want us to turn down God's grace, if you want us to turn down God's grace, we're really going to miss you. And if you want us to water down what we believe to be God's truth, we're really going to miss you too. We won't always get this right. But as a church, we're going to be committed to walk in the fullness of both. Because love is not love without both. And we want people to, and we want you to, we want people to know the perfect love of God because his perfect love is what transforms. That's it. But for that to happen, every person who says they're a follower of Christ who's a part of relevant needs to honestly answer this question. Is it more important to you for people to know your position or for them to take next steps toward Jesus? What's more important to you? Is it for them to know your position or for them to take next steps toward Jesus? Is it more important for you for people who have never put their faith in Jesus, never accepted Jesus' love for them? Is it more important for them to you for them to know your right positions right now? Or is it more important to you for them 
to enter into a saving relationship with Jesus just as they are. By the way, that's the only way they can come. The only prerequisite and the only qualification that Jesus had for people coming into a relationship with him is that they're sinners, which most of us are way overqualified. And is it more important to you for other people who say they're followers of Christ but who are living in sexual immorality to feel shame, to feel judgment, to feel your wrath? Or is it more important to you to help lead them to repentance and turning back toward Jesus? Listen, I know what's most important to Jesus So let's take that approach. If we do, it'll change everything. It'll change everything for them. It'll change everything for you. It'll change everything for us as a church. It'll change everything for a watching world who desperately needs to see what the perfect love of God looks like. This is hard. This is messy. It's not easy. I don't know how to do it perfectly. So I'm going to pray for us. But before I do, for those of you who would say, I've never put my faith in Jesus, I've never, you know, uh, asked him to be the forgiver of my sins, the leader of my life, you know, made that initial repentance, whatever way you want to describe it, and you're going, there's something in me that stirred me to do that today. Man, I just want to, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray to do that now. Jesus has offered you, died for you, he rose for you so you could have eternal life, so you could be forgiven, so you could be reconciled to God, and he's offering that to you today, and all you have to do today is accept it. So let me pray for us. Dear Lord, uh, this is so hard. Um, I thank you for your kindness toward us, for your grace and truth with us all the time. And I pray that we embody that fully and perfectly as best as possible going forward with one another. When we sin, Lord, we just are concerned with everything to help lead each other back to you. And we do it by embodying the kindness of God. Walking in the fullness of grace and truth. Give us wisdom on how to do that. Discernment on how to do that. Courage on how to do that. Um, Lord, for every person who's never put their faith in you, Jesus, who's watching right now, who's in this room, I pray that right now, quietly where they are, they choose to do that. They say, I I need a Savior because of my violation of sin against God. It's separated me from Holy Creator God. And Jesus, I believe you can be that Savior because of your death and ultimately your resurrection. So now today I'm asking you to be my Savior. I'm asking you right now to be the forgiver of my sin. And I'm turning and asking you to be the leader of my life. God's people are praying that right now. I pray that your spirit comes and takes residence within them and you begin a transforming work in them that only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.